It's Tuesday, the 10th of November, and you're watching Goodfellows, a Hoover Institution broadcast examining social, economic, political, and geopolitical concerns in this time of pandemic. I'm Bill Whalen. I'm a research fellow here at the Hoover Institution, as well as the Virginia Hobbs Carpenter Fellow in Journalism. I'll be your moderator today. Now, if this is your first time watching Goodfellows, what you're in store for for the better part of the next hour is a conversation in which three Hoover Institution senior fellows, Goodfellows as we jokingly refer to them, offer their unique insights into what may lie ahead in these uncertain times. Now, let's meet the Goodfellows, beginning with John Cochran. John's an economist and the Hoover Institution's Rosemary and Jack Anderson senior fellow. Hey, John, how are you doing? Pleasure to be here. Glad to see you, my friend. Our second good fellow joining us from his wilderness outpost is Neil Ferguson. Neil, of course, is a renowned historian and author, and he is the Hoover Institution's Milbank Family Senior Fellow. Hello, Neil. Greetings, Bill, from a very snowy wilderness outpost. Snowy wilderness outpost, okay. So you're not in Florida, we can assume. <laughs> <laughs> Correct. Our third good fellow, last but certainly not least, is Lieutenant General H.R. McMaster. General McMaster is the Hoover Institution's Fawada Michelle Ajami Senior Fellow, and he is the author of the New York Times bestseller, Battlegrounds, A Fight to Defend the Free World. H.R., how are you today? Good, Bill. Good to be with you, John and Neil. Okay, gentlemen. So, gee, what are we talking about this week? <laughs> Obviously, what comes next in Washington, uh, we now apparently have a president-elect, Joe Biden, the 46th president of the United States, soon to be. Uh, he has already made some progress before taking office. He announced the other day that he's created a coronavirus task force. He did a press conference today, which is news in itself because he doesn't do many press conferences. He talked a lot about universal health care. But there's a lot that we don't know that he's going to do. So let's try to fill in some of the blanks today. And let's do it in three areas. Let's talk about coronavirus. Let's talk about the economy. And let's talk Talk about foreign policy. And Neil, why don't you kick it off and let's talk about coronavirus and explain to the audience this. We have now news, Pfizer yesterday announcing that it has a vaccine, thinks it's 90% effective. It may come out next spring. The market went crazy. Trump supporters went crazy thinking, my God, the election's now guaranteed to fix. This came out after the election. But big news, the market goes off. At the same time, you have leaders from coast to coast saying, no, bad times are about to happen in winter. Let's talk a bit, Neil, about what's coming up on coronavirus, but also what steps you think the Biden administration should be taking in dealing with the pandemic. Well, Bill, before I answer that question, I, I think I should just maybe pull us all back a couple steps since we last spoke. I I feel we may have underestimated the tenacity with which uh, President Trump and his uh, and his party are going to fight uh, until the bitter end, uh, not only with recounts, but with legal action. Mm -hmm. I just heard uh, Secretary of State Pompeo saying that the transition would be smooth to the second Trump administration. We may have underestimated uh, just how much Republicans are going to deny the legitimacy of Joe Biden's victory the same way Democrats four years ago denied the legitimacy of Donald Trump's victory. And given that the margins are not that different, actually, depending on how you cut the numbers, you could argue that it's actually closer this time around in seven battleground states. I can't say I'm wholly surprised by this. And actually, although I think that it's ultimately not going to succeed, uh, because I think it's really hard to turn as many states as would need to be turned, still, I think this rearguard action was something we underestimated when we last spoke. And I think it makes some sense for Republicans, though they'll be derided by the mainstream media, because they have to somehow keep Donald Trump on board. 
uh, in the sense that they have some vital battles ahead of them uh, in the Georgia runoffs. If between now and then the news uh, cycle is dominated by Trump denouncing uh, sellout Republicans and Republicans calling it for uh, Joe Biden, this is not going to go well. So let's just hold our horses a little bit before we uh, we say this game is over. I don't think it's entirely over. The betting markets don't think it's entirely over. Interestingly, I notice you can still get odds on uh, Trump's re-election if you fancy a flutter. So in this uh, somewhat greater uncertainty than the networks wanted us to feel Saturday when uh, we were all supposed to be banging pans, drinking champagne and celebrating the return of normalcy, along comes a vaccine with 90% efficacy, it would seem. And I think this is uh, not wholly surprising. Uh, my own sense, talking to people who understand these things way better than me, was that the probability of a vaccine for COVID-19 was always quite high and things were going well with Pfizer and with the Moderna trials. I think there'll be a bunch of vaccines actually with pretty good efficacy by year end. Right. And this means that uh, there will be some people getting vaccinated before the year end, probably healthcare workers, and then there'll be a whole lot of us able to get vaccinated by the spring. I, I think there are a couple of points to make. Number one, it's rational for markets to rally on this news, and especially for the stocks of companies that we think of as, as value investments to rally, because this means the pandemic will be over by the middle of next year. I think that's uh, that's almost uh, certain. And that means that all those sectors that have been impaired by the by the virus are going to be able to recover. So there's no surprises to me in the in the market rally. Uh, the, the second point is, yeah, it can still be a dark winter because until we get to the spring and general uh, vaccination, there is going to be ongoing hospitalization and uh, excess mortality. Because as we've discussed before, while we were watching the election, the third wave uh, got going and it got going pretty seriously in the United States. So I think these two things are not inconsistent. Uh, well, maybe one last afterthought and then we can throw it to the other good fellas. If the possible Biden administration, possible president-elect decides to start sending out different messages on the pandemic from the messages that were already coming from the administration, which were already mixed because different people were saying different things. I can't help feeling the public's going to get even more confused rather than suddenly to understand what they need to do right uh, to combat the, the virus until the vaccine is generally available. I kind of worry that some people will say, there's a vaccine. I can relax now. Maybe worth the public service announcement. Just because there's a vaccine doesn't mean that uh, we've got to herd immunity. That's going to take until probably April, May, and June. Mm -hmm. John, HR. Well, let me jump in. Uh, I'm going to say the same things Neil said in different words as I usually do. Uh, I also think you jumped as the media did too quickly. There is no clause of the Constitution by which the Associated Press proclaims the president-elect uh, and I, I had to listen to four hours of NPR while driving last weekend. And the, the, the cheering uh, was uh, not just the cheering um, after calling, uh, calling Trump a liar. And that's a quote of at least 57 times they jumped in to say uh, Biden is the president elect. No, the AP is forecasting that he is likely to be the president elect. I think Democrats would be very well advised to wait. I know you want to get it over with and announce it and say, Trump, go away, go away, go away, but you can wait two weeks. 
wait for this to be certified, wait for the legal challenges to go away. They almost certainly will, but you need legitimacy. And after not just four years ago, after four entire years of denying Donald Trump's legitimacy, uh, you need the same legitimacy yourself. And just waiting for the states to certify the election, waiting for the challenges to go. Let's not forget, it was Al Gore who kept legal challenges going into December. Um, there's also a lot of pushing on the transition, which I think um, merits comment. There's a lot of, oh, the terrible Trumpers aren't helping with the transition. Uh, the transition went so well from Bush to Obama. <clears throat> the transition from Obama to Trump did not go so well. <laughs> In many ways, we don't need to discuss. So they can expect a little bit of uh, a little bit of lack of cooperation, but that should go smoothly as well. Hey, uh, let's get on to no, no, no. I get to talk about the vaccine. Your question. <laughs> you ask two questions, you get two answers from each of us. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Got to get down to asking one question. Then hey, you're on the moderator, you guys. Go ahead. <laughs> Okay, so we got the announcement of the vaccine and that is uh, great news. Mm -hmm. um, uh, we have a winter to get through and a spring to get through. Let us remember also the vaccine has to be competently handled. All a vaccine is, is a technology for reducing the spread of a disease. We have a technology for reducing the spread of a disease, testing, and our government has completely blown any possible use of testing. Uh, that's just not, that's not the president. That's also state, local, everywhere else. We need to be competent at getting this vaccine out. Uh, and Joe Biden's statements on that this morning, uh, at least in the Wall Street Journal, um, two of the important criteria he started with was the equity and it needs to be for free. Well, whether you start with equity and for free, uh, public health effectiveness is, uh, is a good question. Equity usually means politicians first. I, I would not imagine that in a, a, a society that cannot allocate its toilet paper in a pandemic by supply and demand will let the vaccine do the same. But if they give into the temptation to simply grab it from Pfizer and say, we have to give it away for free, uh, Pfizer needs to make boodles of money off of this so that the incentive next time is still there. My, my only second comment on this is um, the Biden team is, oh, we're gonna let the scientists decide. Uh, that might've been nice campaign rhetoric that is terrible governance. First of all, science is not very clear on many aspects of this disease, uh, how it's spread, who spreads it, and so forth. We barely have decent data. Second, scientists, epidemiologists, don't know any economics, and they don't know any politics, and they don't know any law. <laughs> and crafting sensible public policy is not just in the hand of the scientists. The scientists he's appointed tend to be of the lockdown type, which is, of course, what doctors want to do, get rid of the disease, lock everybody down. And kind of the sense one gets from their public policy instincts is that the, the policy to get through the winter is lock down the economy, print money so all of us can order stuff from Amazon and it comes magically to the front door. Now <laughs> that works for scientists, <laughs> but that doesn't work for an economy. So they are now uh, the dog that caught the car and having complained about the Trump administration's uh, handling of this, which incidentally is governor's handling of this, which incidentally looks entirely like Europe's handling this and everyone else's handling of this. They have to handle this as well. And this is gonna be a hard policy question. It's all about getting a reproduction rate down, which is about sensible distancing, sensible public health measures. No, it's not just masks and wash your hands a lot. Uh, you have to have sensible, competent public health. And unless we're gonna just go through a winter with a wild spread of the disease and, uh, and a, a horrible economy, and then the vaccine somehow is gonna come mirabile dictum and 
and, and clear, clear it all up in the spring. Uh, that's not a, a plan for the next year. So uh, they need to do, they need to now swallow the rhetoric and get down to the hard business of putting together science, economics, uh, medicine, the number of people who are hurt by locking down hospitals and come up with a decent, competent plan to, to get us through to where vaccines can help. And then not let too much ideology get in the way of getting the vaccine out as fast as possible. Okay, HR, now that John has uh, chastised me and properly so for cutting him off, your turn. Uh, tell us about warp speed and your confidence in warp speed getting this right, since John has indicated the government has been wrong on a lot of this so far. So, Billy, I, I mentioned this you know, months ago. We talked about this months ago. And I said, really, there are three ways that you have to, to cope with the pandemics. The first is to try to stop them before they become pandemics. And we couldn't do that thanks to the Chinese Communist Party. The second is to mobilize a biomedical response. And we were caught short on that for a number of reasons. And we have this in, in our Hoover Institution study on COVID-19 that our amazing research assistants really pulled together with, you know, with scores of interviews of those who were coping uh, with the pandemic, and and we were caught short because we don't we didn't share data and situational understanding very well, especially in, in connection with stockage levels for, uh, for for personal protective equipment, for example, or ventilators, or you name it. And and the, and the reason for that, in part, is that we have a hybrid system, right? We're a federal system, first of all, right? No national level commission is going to solve all this problem, and I, and I think the Biden administration is going to recognize that you know, pretty soon. And then second, we have a combination of a public and, and private system. So the sharing of data and understanding is very important. And then secondly, you know, our, our supply chains became very vulnerable over the years because they were biased in favor of efficiency rather than having the stocks in place for a pandemic. That has been rectified. You know, for example, I think there were only something like 14 million sets of personal protective equipment at the national level at the beginning of the pandemic. There's now there are now 54 million sets and also stockages at the local levels uh, in much larger numbers as well. So that problem has been solved. But, you know, due to the laws of physics, it took some time uh, to, to recover. And then the, the third area of, of response has to do with uh, has to do with a, a vaccine and, and therapies, right? Innovating medically to, to, to solve the problem. Hey, warp speed is going to be done extremely well, Bill. I mean, General Gus Perna is running that from a from a logistics perspective, uh, and they're, we're using existing supply chains that are that are and distribution networks, I should say, that are in place already. They're primed for it. Their rehearsals are being done. I am very confident that that is going to work. Uh, I think also we'll get better. You know, it's strategic and focused testing. The the Hoover report that we did on COVID nineteen says, hey, testing is not a panacea. Right. T testing is effective if it's done in a focused and strategic manner around schools, for example, or around certain business activities. And certainly, of course, the top priority is to protect the most vulnerable population. And we know that that is, that is the elderly population or those with comorbidities and so forth. So we've learned a lot. We've applied a lot. And so what I, I hope that uh, a Biden administration doesn't do is something draconian that doesn't really make sense based on these realities, right? That, you know, the federal government doesn't run this whole show. It is in large measure an issue of coordination and integration of efforts across the government, across various levels of government, and between the public and private sectors. I, our military guy comes in, every war is won by logistics and supplies. <laughs> And Gus, Bur Gus Burn is the best of them. He's, I mean, he's a, <laughs> been a dear friend for a long time, and and uh, he's the go-to guy. There's, you know, the old saying is right: amateurs do tactics, 
right? Uh, professionals to understand what this this one is a mixed, this isn't exactly a war <laughs> because there's an enormous amount of private behavior involved. If our oh, your fellow citizens would stop going to bars and super spreader events, uh, and just a little common sense would go a long way to helping this. Uh, to Absolutely. This that's, that's what I did mention, John, is like the control the spread aspect as well, right? Which is well, you can't, part of mobilizing the, the response. Yeah. And let us have fast testing, which would do one of the we could have that right now, which would help to control this. I'm going to say that about five times this uh, <laughs> this episode. Can I add before we move on that that if if you think about the success stories in the world, it's amazing that we're now in November and we still haven't really figured out why Taiwan and South Korea nailed this. And it was testing plus contact tracing plus effective isolation of the infected or suspected infected. And no Western country has got this right. And I think that's going to be a puzzle for historians because there was a kind of playbook that was there and available back in February. Uh, and for some reason, Western public health uh, bureaucracies on both sides of the Atlantic didn't look at it. Instead, they said, oh, what the Chinese did in Hubei is what we need to do, hence the lockdowns. And I think the future historians and economic historians especially are going to say, you know what, the costs of those lockdowns exceeded the benefits quite considerably, even if you narrowly measure it in terms of uh, impacts on excess mortality. I, I must say I'm kind of shocked at how slowly we've learned uh, uh, considering the fact that the problem was actually solved by Taiwan in month one. Let me, I think the hard part here, which shows a failing of our political system, you know, why are we having a second wave? Because after the first wave ebbed, uh, our government said, oh, good, we can loosen up now. Well, of course, this is like taking a course of antibiotics. It's after you start to feel better that you've got to tamp it down and get rid of it. And I, I think people did the, people saw that there's uh, the, the wave is over. So they went out to bars and partied and we got the second wave. And governments did the same thing. Why didn't they just counted on that trend continuing, just not understanding the basics of how a disease works? That when that when you back off, you had your chance when it's very small to get that contact tracing and testing regime in place. Because public health can stop a disease when it's small. Public health can't stop a disease when it's exploding. Uh, and this summer we had a second chance to stop it while it was small. And we all, and this isn't Trump, this is the governors, this is all of Western Europe, blew that chance. Well, you know, I, th I think we can overdo, obviously, the, the war analogies, right? But, you know, hey, in war, the enemy has a say in the future course of events, right? War is interactive. And I do think our battles with disease, right, across the ages uh, it is, is, a useful, it is analogous uh, to, to the kind of competition that you see in war. And, you know, we were off to the Rhine, uh, in 1944, when the German army attacked at, at, at the Ardennes, right? So I, mean, I think I think that you can never assume that progress in this kind of interactive competition is going to be linear. And viruses are a little more predictable than uh, Germans, uh, and uh, <laughs> uh, you know, we, when when you've beat it down, is that it's a natural human thing to do to say, "Oh, I'm feeling a whole lot better. Let's go out and party." But the key to a public health strategy is to use that moment uh, to use the tools that you have in order to try to stop the second rise of it. And uh, that's it's 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 a failing. All political systems have done this every every time, every epidemic I've read about. Neil will probably get us uh, deeper on the history of it. But you come in waves and a large part of the waves is that as it subsides, the public health effort backs off because politically you can't maintain a costly effort against something that isn't right out there now. 
Well, to carry on with the metaphor just briefly, the 14th Cavalry was not as vigilant as they might have been when, when the German army attacked. Ah, that's well, a I, I, think the, I think the it is a similar dynamic, John. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I do have a question for you, gentlemen, before we close out on uh, coronavirus, and it's this. It's a question of behavior modification. Um, Biden is going to get his recommendations from his task force, and I suppose they're going to have some very tough language in there about masks, maybe about social gatherings. We're at a point in our society right now, Thanksgiving is approaching, and what you see in the state of California, which Neil will not come back to for good reasons, is this. The state of California will not tell you how to live, but they'll give you a lot of recommendations. And so for Thanksgiving, you can't have more than three families involved. You have to have it outdoors. It can't be more than two hours. You have to have a clean bathroom. We've just found the worst job in California, by the way, bathroom inspector for Thanksgiving. Uh, The point is this, government's coming forth a lot of recommendations. You should wear a mask, but you don't have to. Uh, How is government going to enforce it? This crossed my mom and I was watching, of all things, a football game on Saturday night, Notre Dame and Clemson. A very funny moment, by the way, the Catholic president-elect bumping Notre Dame off TV, but that's another story. But at the end of that game, Notre Dame pulls an upset. Thousands upon thousands of Notre Dame students pour upon the field. This is a spreader event. It couldn't stop them from coming on the field. How are you going to keep the inaugural, if there's an outdoor inaugural with Biden, from being a spreader event? In other words, government can make all kinds of recommendations, but how are you going to actually change people's behavior? There were rather a lot of what looked like super spreader events on Saturday of a more political than sporting nature, unless my eyes deceived me. No, I think part of uh, the difficulty here is that as uh, pandemics do come in waves, this is your kind of weekly reminder. I think I've been saying this since January. Uh, there was nothing less difficult to predict than that there would be a second wave. And we're now in a third wave, which is closely related to the behavior of young people. On both sides of the Atlantic, reopening uh, colleges was uh, crucial to uh, reigniting spread. Uh, Young people uh, felt themselves, I think not necessarily correctly, to be relatively little at risk uh, and therefore uh, did not uh, observe social distancing. Uh, When do students ever do that? But the key thing that people struggle with is that, uh, you know, you may be okay, but you're going to spread it to people who are vulnerable. And I think there's a lot of um, uh, collective action problems here, which seem to be more acute in Western societies than in East Asian societies. Uh, And I've, I've found this a kind of curious thing to observe, uh, even in you know, the socially distanced, geographically thinly populated place where I'm located. Uh, I think that there was a dumb reopening, to use John's excellent analysis, back in the summer. Uh, but what we've seen in the third wave was somewhat different, and I think had a lot to do with the behavior of young people saying to themselves, ah, this is a disease that kills the elderly, so I don't need to worry. Uh, but of course, in every university town, uh, students are not hermetically sealed from older people. There are these professors, for example, uh, who tend not to be in their 20s. Um, and then there are all the people who work uh, in and around the campus. So I think when uh, we go back and look at the third wave dynamics, it's very clear that in Europe, especially in the UK, it was university towns that drove it. I'm pretty sure that was also the case in in the US. And what you couldn't see, because the data showed you the number of students who were getting sick, which was very few, was the number of people in university towns who were, who were getting infected. Mm-hmm. You asked a specific question, which is how can you uh, do better? One I would say would be to not issue such ridiculously complex guidelines that everybody knows are not based on any sort of science whatsoever. Oh, only three people, not five people. 
Uh, masks themselves, homemade masks are a 13th century, 14th century invention for uh, trying to stop diseases. Uh, you know, why are, if masks are important. Why don't we all have N95 masks to actually do something? But as one observation on how silly the complex rules are, I, I read last week that um, of people who tested positive for COVID and were told to quarantine, in, I think this was in the UK, 20% of them actually did quarantine and the rest said, screw it, I'm going to the pub. Uh, if not even that much can get followed, good luck on your uh, hundred page guidelines full of made up ideas. I mean, people are just ignoring that. Uh, I think that the key is to stop the super spreader events and stopping the hypocrisy might be one way to start. Um, choose your media outlet. One of uh, protests or Trump rallies is uh, a, a needed expression of important things. And the other one is a horrible super spreader event. Well, come on guys. <laughs> uh, the one key of this virus is it spreads from, from the individual health point of view, it can spread lots of ways, but from a public health point of view, getting the reproduction rate uh, under one, uh, really all you have to do is stop the super spreader events. Large number of people indoors for a long amount of time talking loudly. If you can do that or convince people not to go to them, then you would you would cut this thing down immensely with without masks and hand sanitizer and a bunch of things that we all know don't do a whole lot of good anyway. HR. Well, Bill, the only thing I'd add is, is inform people and send a simple, clear, consistent message, which is what we have not done, right? And somehow this became partisan and political, as John said, which is crazy. I mean, the virus spreads to Democrats and Republicans equally, right? And so we ought to be able to come together to understand what is the, you know, what, what are the best measures to, to, to reduce uh, the spread? As John said, you know, cut off super spreader events. Yes. You know, wear a mask. I think the more you can highlight to people that, you know, if you don't want to wear the mask for yourself, fine, but wear the mask to be courteous to others, to make sure you don't spread it to someone who then goes to visit their grandparents uh, and you and and then there's what the result is an unnecessary death, right? So anyway, I just think that we have to appeal to people's social responsibility. You know, Neil Neil mentioned Taiwan and and, and South Korea. I mean, there probably are cultural factors involved. I mean, Americans are predisposed toward not wanting to be told what to do, but I think we can be encouraged to do the right thing. And 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 if our leaders send a a simple, clear, consistent message, which you know, President Trump is not, the administration hasn't. There have been inconsistent messages between the, the state and federal levels. You know, So anyway, I, I just think that it's time for a simple, clear, consistent message. And we have learned a lot about the disease. There's still a lot we don't know, uh, but we've learned a lot. And, and I think the more you can inform the American people, the, the better. I mean, this was you know, the much pilloried Sweden model, and there were problems with all these models. It, what, what they found is that without mandates, Swedes took the measures themselves, right? Because they were generally well-informed about the way the virus spread. Uh, I think that that same approach would work in the United States as well. Maybe not perfectly as, as Neil alluded to, but but I think it'd be much better than what we've seen so far. Okay, let's uh, shift now to economics. And in fairness, um, this depends largely on what happens in the two Georgia Senate races in January. If it's a 50-50 Senate with Kamala Harris as a tie-breaking vote, that's a complete game changer when it comes to what could happen, say, on the Trump tax cuts. But uh, assuming that doesn't happen, though, let's take it this way. I went through the Biden campaign uh, papers. I found an emergency action plan to save the economy, which had such... Uh, Chestnuts is enforced real conditions and oversights on big corporations, forgive student loans, provide all necessary fiscal relief to states. That one's in direct quotes. Um, 
John Cochran, what do we know about Bidenomics other than we can guess he's going to offer an infrastructure plan, a stimulus package? What what do, what do you think about Joe Biden economics? What, what do you think? I want to put in a chit that will come back to the Georgia Senate races, which I think are a very important thing to think about and what will happen. Uh, but whichever way it goes, um, both parties are kind of on the same tune here. The one, they are like a two-year-old with a hammer to whom everything looks like a nail. And the one tool we seem to have is fiscal stimulus. What that means in practice is blow out uh, spending by the federal government, uh, finance these days by printing money. Um, uh, but whether it's printing money or borrowing treasuries doesn't really matter. Um, and uh, when you look under the uh, under the hood, it's uh, it's um, you know it's it's paying off people's debts and sending people money and um, bailing out a lot of improvident ideas. Uh, spending money in, in lavishly inefficient ways. But um, there's this one theory, Keynesian economics, which says that no matter what the ill, uh, borrowing money and spreading it out the window is the solution to that problem. And I think a, a pandemic makes it perfectly clear how wrong that is. We are recovering far faster than all of the Keynesian models said we would. Mm -hmm. This is a supply problem. You can give people all the money they want. They're not going to hotels and uh, airlines and restaurants as long as there's a disease around and especially as long as the government has shut those things down. Uh, so it's, it's, a, uh, it's an unfortunate um, habit that the only tool they have is to uh, borrow money and throw it uh, willy-nilly into the wind. And that's uh, now, the rest of Bidenomics is um, kind of a mishmash of what we've known of. Uh, it's not really economics. It's uh, <laughs> we're going to pretend to raise taxes on rich people, but we're also going to get rid of the state and local deduction, which lowers taxes on rich people mm -hmm. so that rich people who have good tax lawyers and accountants are going to come out about the same uh, as they always did uh, if we actually do raise taxes on rich people. And then we're going to talk about spending immense amounts of money on all sorts of stuff, mm -hmm. uh, which will have not that much consequence at the rates they spend it. Neil? I'm going to take a slightly different line from John, uh, though I don't disagree with what he said. I think what's going to matter for Biden economics is that they won't be able to do the Keynesian splurge that they were planning on doing, the $4 trillion spend, and they won't be able to do the big tax hikes that they were planning to do uh, on, on corporate income tax and, and capital gains, assuming uh, that the Republicans hold one of those, win one of those Georgia runoffs. Uh, but because of the vaccine and because there is a ton of spending power waiting to be unleashed, they may actually get quite a nice little economic boom next year. Uh, and that seems to me an important variable to bear in mind. They don't actually need to do the stuff they keep saying they need to do. And they're going to be prevented from doing it if Mitch McConnell is still master of the Senate. And they may end up looking quite good and they won't deserve to, but uh, they are very likely to, to reap the benefit of the vaccine uh, breakthrough, which 
I think it's just going to unleash a lot of demand uh, when consumers can go back to the service sector. They've accumulated quite a lot of spending power, either because the government sent them checks or because they just couldn't spend. And there was a lot of forced saving during the most lockdown period. So I'd say watch out for the Biden boom and the roaring 20s. They might roar a bit more than people are expecting by the time we get into to 2022. I don't know what you think, John, but I could imagine the Fed being a little surprised uh, by how quickly Quickly, they get above that two percent target. Uh, not in the not in the first half of next year, but uh, once we're all back to uh, social life as normal and uh, and the vaccines are being widely distributed, things are going to look very very different. Let me uh, agree. That's a very good point. Um, with the vaccine, if it if it comes in, the economy will recover all on its own. Uh, they will be have be lucky to take over <clears throat> as it's doing so and take credit for it. Uh, but then I think uh, we, we unquestionably move from demand to supply and everything that they have said that they are going to do uh, produces the kind of very sclerotic low growth rates that we saw in the latter Obama years. Um, so uh, yes, you get a, a boom, a recovery from a low level. Uh, you know, when you're down in the bottom of a canyon, it's easy to boom when you just get back up to where you were. Uh, so you get a boom as you recover and you're exactly right, is deferred investment, deferred consumption. Uh, people go out and have a, a well-deserved party at the end of all this. But then if you really do uh, um, vastly increase regulation, uh, vastly increase uh, various controls on the economy, uh, actually increase taxes to some extent, um, then you, you're at, certainly we're seeing labor regulation, uh, you know, do, do unto the rest of the economy what California tried to do to Uber. Uh, what you get is slow growth. You, you, you get, don't get a boom that lasts for more than a year or so. And that I think is the, the likely outcome. Yeah. I think, uh, Bill, on this, there's just maybe three eyes to watch. The first is international trade. Uh, I think for those who are hoping for the resurrection of multilateral trade agreements, that's probably not going to happen. But uh, along with international trade, it's international standards. I think the Biden administration will come in recognizing the need to compete, especially with China, on data standards, on privacy standards, standards that will that will help outline our opportunities in the emerging data-driven global global economy. The 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 uh, the, the, the second the second eye is infrastructure. Infrastructure in our uh, in our country that, that we know is is uh, is behind in terms of transportation infrastructure, but in particular. Uh, communications, uh, communications uh, infrastructure, and and I think that there will be uh, the, a third eye in the discussion, which is an, an industrial policy of of some kind. Now, the the more mild version of this is economic statecraft, and this is the recognition that many of the national security competitions that are ongoing have a very important private sector component, and there's a recognition that because of China's military-civil fusion policies, that puts us at a disadvantage in some key areas. The most recent of those we've seen in fifth generation communications infrastructure, for, for example, that has huge security as well as economic implications. Mm -hmm. So I would watch the three eyes in, in a Biden administration. And I think in each of these, these will be areas where there's an opportunity for some bipartisan support. And uh, we'll see, we'll see uh, how they prioritize their efforts in those areas. I want to ask HR a question on this here. I will kneel too. I mean, first, infrastructure. It's easy to spend money in infrastructure. It's hard in the U.S. to actually produce that infrastructure. It, you know, if you want to 
just create a freeway overpass. You got 10 years of environmental reports to get through. And then the Davis-Bacon Act, it cost them, what, $4 billion a mile to build subway in New York. I mean, that's the problem with infrastructure. And uh, for the Democrats to actually try to streamline some of the bureaucratic roadblocks would be, that'll be an interesting challenge for them right. to discover there are no shovel-ready projects as they discovered once. But the question I want to ask you, you mentioned the return to international institutions. And as a disciple of George Shultz, I've also heard the same, you know, the post-war US global order working through rules-based international institutions. And, and I, I, boy, I'd love it if we could go back to that. But then we face the fact that most of the international institutions are rotten to the core. Uh, you know, we certainly don't want to just jump back kumbaya to the UN Human Rights Panel, which is, I forget who, which horrible dictatorship gallery. is. Yes. Which, which is really <laughs> now. Most of the other international institutions are similarly either run by the Chinese or run by people completely inimical to U.S. values. Um, how do you... Now, I, I'm not for Trump's go back to, you know, we are the nation, we fight everything alone. But um, how how do you go back to reform institutions that that under generations of uh, both parties' um, governments just, just turned rotten? That's why we turned away from them. And I think what you're saying is why the Bidens won't just jump. I mean, we could jump back into the Paris, Paris Accord and say, oh, yeah, sure, kumbaya, we'll fix our carbon by some year when we're all 20 years dead and then do nothing about it. Uh, do we just jump back into the Iranian nuclear? You know, the, the, all of these international systems were desperately in need of reform. And I don't see these guys jumping in to reform them. So how do you square that circle? Well, I, I just think that the headline is, hey, there's no prize for membership like in these organizations, right? You have to compete within them, right? I mean, so what happens is you know, China and others, they turn these institutions against their purpose, right? That's what happened with the World Health Organization. As you mentioned, the Human Rights Council, UNESCO, the International Civil Aviation Organization. So I think you have, you have, a, you have a choice, right? You can walk away and say, it's so bad, like the Human Rights Council. I just can't even be associated with it. That's, that's a choice. The other choice is to compete within it, to prevent it from being turned against its purpose. So the Chinese were making a big bid, as you, I'm sure we're tracking, to take over uh, international intellectual property standards and patents. Talk about like the fox in the hen house, right? So we got together with like-minded nations and said, let's not let that happen. And so, and we didn't let it happen. So I, I think the recognition to compete is step one and then competing effectively to prevent them from subverting these, these organizations. But you know, to get to try to turn the clock back, you know, to 2016 would be a big mistake. I mean, uh, you know, the, the Paris Accord, you know, I try I try to keep the president in it. You know, I was like, okay, I mean, th this is really gonna upset everybody, but they're not gonna want to work with anything, you know. It doesn't make any difference but, anyway. But, but I'll tell you, once we were out, John, I, I think there was a there was a silver lining to that, right? Because that agreement gave us this false sense of, of security. It didn't do a damn thing to, to, to solve the, the, the global warming problem. It gave license to the world's biggest polluters to continue polluting. And so how about how about like an international agreement that is associated with real solutions instead of these non-solutions, right? So I, I do think that, you know, we have to watch this, right? There ought to be deep skepticism about, you know, these terms like global governance, okay? It's not going to happen, right? I mean, you know, the, the Chinese Communist Party, the Russians, I mean, <laughs> others are not waiting to be led by us. Now, I do think, though, international cooperation is more important than ever. So I don't know, Neil, if you're tracking you know, some of these other initiatives, like uh, the T10 initiative. I know you're tracking the tech competition and the tech war with China. You know, there's an idea that 
we take the 10 most technologically advanced like-minded countries and we work together on cutting edge technologies that are, are critical to the emerging global economy and to national security. So I think there might be some new structures now that we need in place as we fight to protect you know, the, the sanctity uh, of, of the, the, the existing organizations. Yeah, that that idea floated by Jared Cohen and Richard Fontaine uh, was uh, an interesting, eye-catching one. It'd be interesting to see, uh, given Jared's uh, role at Google and Eric Schmidt's obviously considerable influence over Biden world, how far uh, that idea gets. My sense is that we might be looking at the wrong things here, because in the history of uh, international relations, the, the the international agencies play a smaller role than the alliances. And I think what, what will really be interesting will be to see how easily uh, a Biden administration, should that come about, can uh, restore uh, the alliances, which certainly took a battering uh because of President Trump's obvious uh, lack of any real sympathy with uh, with alliances, his tendency to regard them as purely transactional. Now, I think it's going to be easy, very easy, uh, for Biden's national security team to uh, repair relations with Europe, because Europeans always love democratic presidents, and they always hate Republican presidents. So this is a kind of familiar pattern where the Europeans uh, celebrate uh, the advent of uh, a democratic administration, and there'll be much more a harmonious mood music. You can already hear it emanating from, from Berlin. But I don't think much will change of substance, uh, just as NATO wasn't, in fact, undermined by Donald Trump. So I don't think the Europeans will suddenly pay their fair share just because there's a Democrat in the White House. So I think there'll be lots of kind of meaningless mood music. Uh, the actual changes will, will not be that significant. I'm more interested in what happens in East Asia and how far your policy, your strategy of co competition with China is sustained under a putative Biden administration. And I am hearing very mixed signals on this. On one side, I can see that if Michelle Flournoy is at defense, they'll be quite tough on uh, the classical issues of South China Sea and, and Taiwan. But I'm also suspecting that at commerce, uh, there'll be a, a pretty quick uh, hoisting of the white flag on trade. Uh, and perhaps uh, Huawei will find itself uh, under far less pressure. There's a danger, I think, that uh, that a relatively weak presidency will produce a, an incoherent policy on China uh, because Biden himself does not feel strongly. We saw that from early in the campaign about the Chinese challenge. Uh, if I'm sitting in Beijing, I'm hoping that uh, that a Biden national security team is just going to give me uh, some some quick wins by taking off the tariffs, taking off the pressure on Huawei, and offering in return. Well, this goes back to John's point. Oh, we'll reduce our emissions to uh, to zero uh, by by 2060. Uh, I, I mean, if if Joe Biden assembles a national security team that takes that then I shall be extremely depressed. I don't think they'll be quite so naive, but will they have a coherent strategy on China? I think that's not clear at all. I have to remind you too that <clears throat> economics is not a competition. It's not a zero sum game. Uh, it is not the plaything of governments who want to uh, increase our strategic standing that actually uh, Huawei, if Huawei were to uh, abide by um, 
uh, security norms, it would be a great thing if they could produce stuff cheap and send it to us. But I have to say that once a show, and then we can go on to other things. <laughs> hey, I think the well, word is reciprocity, issues. reciprocity, John, because you know, for the Chinese, win-win means winning twice themselves. <laughs> so I, mean, I, think, I think reciprocity should be the key. When the Chinese make something cheap and sell it to us cheap, we win. We just got to remember that. <laughs> <laughs> not if okay. there are back not if there are back doors which send the data back to no, Beijing. I mean absolutely problem. not. Exactly. Uh, but and that's security... why a kind of narrowly economic approach to this problem just misses out the national security. But, but, and we've had this argument uh, so many I'm, times. I'm with you on security. Probably boring our listeners. Industrial policy to win the technology game with China and you know define the industries of the 21st. Let's just so, so again, a we're a little handicapped. We don't know. We haven't filled in the blanks. We don't know who's going to be the Secretary of State or the Director of the National Security Council and the Secretary of Commerce, as Neil referenced. But we do know this. Biden gave a speech on foreign policy, and he used the phrase, re-engage with the world. So, gentlemen, what does that mean, re-engage with the world? Nothing. It's banal. It's vacuous. It means nothing. Show me the detail. What does it mean? You know, if the U.S. decided to sign the Paris Agreement, but then at the same time pointed out that 48% of the increase in CO2 emissions since the Paris Agreement was signed could be attributed to China, then, you know, I'd be interested. Let's engage for sure, whatever that means. But if we engage uncritically so that we essentially give the Chinese Communist Party a pass, uh, if we attempt some kind of uh, detente light uh, then I think it will be a, it will be a phony kind of engagement. If we engage with the Europeans in such a way that they can just continue to free ride indefinitely on U.S. security commitments, that will be a completely pointless kind of engagement. So, no, I think we need to see some more detail before we can conclude that this is anything more than the speechwriters churning out the uh, the feel good cliches. And, and, to, and to feel good at by Davos, you know, kind of say the things that all the hypocritical things that. Uh, Europeans love to say to to be cheered at the cocktail parties in Davos. That's a that's a shoe in, but <laughs> I agree with Neil entirely. So, what does that mean uh, when you actually in terms of policy? HR, sorry. No, no. I I think I think we just need to hear the answers to three questions, right? What is it that we want to achieve, right? What is the vision for America's future from an international security and foreign policy perspective? You know, what are the obstacles to achieving that vision and how do we overcome them? What are the opportunities that we can exploit uh, to build a better future for Americans and, and, you know, and the world, right? So I, I think that oftentimes when you hear engage with the world, like for what purpose, I think, ought to be, ought to be the next question. And then, of course, uh, the engagement, as Neil's saying, is I mean, it's not an end in and of itself. Uh, and we have to recognize that there are real competitions ongoing. Uh, that will determine whether or not we have a future of, of, of peace and, and prosperity. Mm -hmm. Well, Jim, let me ask you this. On foreign policy, what pressure is he under? If we talk domestic policy with the Democratic president-elect, he's under tremendous policy as a restless base. They want to spend money. They want to do all sorts of great, glorious things. But what is the foreign policy equivalent for Biden? Nobody cares about foreign policy right now. <laughs> So I think that's the bottom line. Except, is, except the battlegrounds readers. I mean, we got to, I mean, come on now. No, no, but in terms <laughs> of the big swath, the big fights that we're headed for in terms of American politics is just not about foreign policy, other than a certain amount of the Democratic Party has to decide where it stands on Israel and uh, other such uncomfortable questions. But um, 
just not the big issue that anyone's going to be fighting about. That's well, my well I think the pressure is going to come from Obama veterans who will reappear in this administration saying we have to undo what they did over the last four years and go back to uh, the Iran nuclear deal and we have to go back to Paris and and uh, and then we have to undo all this uh, counterproductive stuff and start a strategic dialogue with China again. And I fear very much that if, if that's the direction they, they go in, acting like they can just turn the clock back four years, the outcomes will be miserable. The hope is that some at least of those people, Kurt Campbell, for example, have learned a little bit from the failures of the second Obama term. And I have a hunch that at least some of those people will want to take a, a much tougher line. Now, if Susan Rice is Secretary of State, um, yeah, I'm not sure that HR is going to be uh, cracking open the bubbly to celebrate. That There I could imagine a, a significant turning back of the clock. But I don't think that's what's going to happen. I mean, my, my my hunch is that if Mitch McConnell's master of the Senate, Susan Rice couldn't get confirmed. Uh, and and that's, that's going to be important, which is why we keep coming back to Georgia. Um, if, as I think I may have said before, Biden wins the White House, but the Democrats cannot win the Senate, he's the first president, Democratic president in that position since 1884 since Grover Cleveland. And we aren't really ready for such a weak uh, presidency. It's going to make Jimmy Carter look strong uh, if he's in that situation. And that narrow, narrows the range of things that he can do both domestically and in foreign policy. And now it gets interesting because Jimmy Carter's problem was always the left of his own party, uh, which didn't like much that he attempted to do, which what, what one reason he achieved so little. I think Biden could have a similar problem. He is going to have to cut deals if he can with Mitch McConnell in this scenario. He's going to have to appoint confirmable people, uh, which probably rules out all the heroes uh, of the squad in the House. And the squad in the House, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez et al., are going to make a lot of noise. Uh, and they've already begun doing so. They've started their little list of the people uh, who uh, committed thought crimes during the last four years. I think that is going to be the pressure that that. Biden uh, will be will be under every deal he tries to do, every move he makes to the center ground will be assailed by the left of his own party. Let me uh, sort of chip in here. Um, they sort of have three choices of what to do. Um, one, govern. Uh, just do this little fixes that America needs uh, to, to keep going and assure the electorate uh, that uh, by 2022, that they're not going to make the national economy look like what they've done to the cities that they they run, which is, I think, what the great fear is. Mm -hmm. And that's, I think, uh, you know, cut some deals <clears throat> with Mitch McConnell, sensible reforms here, reform, sensible immigration reform, clean up some of the tax code, uh, you know, uh, handle the public health stuff. Just convince us normally you can govern. That's what Biden was elected to do. That's his mandate. It's not what's going to happen, <laughs> but that would be what I would, I would love them to do. Uh, the second question is the war inside the Democratic Party. Uh, and I think this is the one really to pay attention to. Um, it's the, I'm going to use the metaphor again, it's the, the Woodstock generation versus the woke millennials. Uh, if anyone has a demographic problem, it's the Democratic, de Democratic Party, because all of their moderates are 60, 70, pushing 80 and above and the young woke millennials are, are really pushing to take over. Mm -hmm. um, and in that sense, there's a, I, I will admit, I'm actually kind of cheering for the Democrats to win in Georgia. Uh, I'll, I'll use a military analogy to get HR going. So there's a time in war when you wanna kind of 
feint around and see who's going and, and move and maneuver. And then there's the time for the decisive battle. Um, if the Republicans win in, uh, and keep the Senate, then the next two years are written as, um, as Neil said. It's going to, the, the squad is gonna want their uh, proposals. They're gonna die in the Senate. The New York Times will, will be printing in red ink how terrible it is that McConnell is uh, such an evil person and slowing things down. And it gives a wonderful excuse. Oh, we would love to do all this stuff, but evil McConnell in the Senate won't let us do this stuff. Uh, so just come back in 2022 and vote a little more and maybe it'll get done. No, I think it's time for that decisive battle. They have now won the presidency and the House. Um, let the, it is time for the Democrats to figure out who they are. And if they don't have uh, the break uh, in, you know, what, why fight a slow retreat in a losing war? Um, I think it's time for them to uh, put a, you know, figure out what they're gonna do. And if what they're gonna do is the Green New Deal, uh, cancel everybody's debts, um, massive tax increases. Now, pretend tax increases. You know, Donald Trump didn't pay $750 in taxes because the federal marginal rate is 0.002% at that level of income. <laughs> uh, but, you know, past uh, taxing, you know, do the whole agenda or say that you're not going to do the agenda. Just without the excuse of McConnell and company, tell us who you are by 2022 uh, and, uh, and win or lose this battle. Um, I, I, all sorts of mischief will come out. My, my forecast is, in fact, that the young millennials will will show that they are the party, and then the voters can decide if that's what they want. So I'm I'm secretly cheering for that outcome, though it would be uh, uh, it would be a lot of chaos in between. Mm -hmm. Final question for you, gentlemen. The process will play out in the next few weeks, and we'll have a president by January the twentieth. If we have flames right now in terms of contesting this election, in terms of alleging the election was rigged, in terms of uh, Trump populists believing the system is against them, if that fire diminishes, though, what about the, the briquettes, if you will, the hot coals? Are the hot coals going to be around for the next four years? Will we see Trump populism on the 2024 ballot? Or with Donald Trump not in office, does that recede? Well, you know, I, I, hope, I hope, Bill, that the Republican Party uh, treats the elected president, if it is Joe Biden, which it certainly will be, I think we can say at this stage, uh, with, with more respect, deference, and, and wanting him to succeed than many Democrats treated the, the new Trump administration. Remember the resist movement and, and you know, all of the, you know, the not my president uh, protests and so forth at the beginning of the Trump administration. Of course, our, I, I always look at this from a foreign policy perspective. That's what our adversaries want, right? They want large numbers of Americans to doubt the legitimacy of the result and then to use that doubt and the legitimacy of the result to polarize us further, pit us against each other, reduce our confidence. And so I, I just think that we ought to be cognizant of that and, and recognize that we hate, we, we, have, a, we have a way uh, to administer a corrective if you don't like the result of this election. And that's called the next election, right? And so begin to organize yourselves uh, to, to do better. Uh, I think the, the judicial challenges will have run their course by then, Bill. Uh, and, and really, it, I think what will be important is, is, what is what is the message that you hear from Republican leaders? I think so far, the message from President-elect Biden has been pretty positive, very positive, in connection with his desire to bring the country together to say, listen, I don't care if you voted for me or not, right? I'll, I want to be your president. So let's give him the benefit of the doubt on that, right? And and we all ought to want the, the elected president to succeed in advancing and protecting our, our interests, right? And 
And so I, I do, I kind of suspect that the Republican Party will be more gracious uh, in, in, uh, in losing the presidency than the Democratic Party was in 2016. Mm-hmm. John? Um, they will feel the system is against them because the system is against them. Uh, if you just read the New York Times, uh, watch the Twitter, what gets censored on Twitter or listen to NPR, uh, the system is entirely against them and they will remember that. Um, I also, another th- thing I noticed, um, notice the California referendums. They were very interesting. Uh, for the first time in history, uh, the electorate voted just about 90% exactly the way I voted. Every tax increase was turned down. Uh, the proposition to, re- to uh, restore uh, racial discrimination in public hiring and university admissions was turned down. Uh, the voters want sensible government e- governance, even deep blue state uh, voters in California. M- maybe not the residents of San Francisco itself who wrote, voted in a hilarious tax on CEO pay, but the rest of the state, uh, you know, what m- most they don't want to defund the police. They don't want to turn it over to Antifa. They don't want to rip up the constitution and so forth. Uh, so I think that's kind of why I'm cheering for let it rip because uh, what I think we noticed in this election, the large increase in blacks voting for Trump, Latinos voting for Trump. Um, I think uh, that outreach is bearing fruit. Uh, and if the squad takes over <laughs> the democratic party, uh, the Republicans will then shift towards the moderate Democrats and say, welcome to uh, welcome to a centrist party. So I think in loss, there is a chance to reconstitute and reconstitute a coalition that is quite different. And if that coalition includes um, uh, uh, young black and Latino people and uh, moderate Democrats looking for a home that because uh, they don't think the, the far left craziness is, is their home. That would be a very interesting Republican Party in two years. Neil, you get the last word. Well, I listened to uh, Joe Biden's speech on Saturday night. I gathered the historian John Meacham wrote it. I thought it was very well judged. I liked it very much. And I agree with HR's point that he said the right things. At the same time, that I, I don't think this is going to be uh, much of a, a time for healing uh, because uh, on the Republican side, as HR rightly said, people remember the way in which Democrats refused to recognize the legitimacy of the last election result in 2016, marched en masse against Trump, talked irresponsibly about resistance, uh, entirely inappropriate term. There are commentators uh, writing today, people who I once thought of as being conservatives, who say that those who support the Trump administration were collaborators. This kind of language is just, I think, unforgivable. And I think Republicans have every right to to pay them back uh, in the same coin uh, and question the legitimacy of the result. Of course they will. And it'll be kept going, even if Fox News isn't doing it, it'll be kept going on, on Facebook and in multiple other channels. So I'm afraid uh, that the, the country is going to feel just as divided uh, a year from now uh, uh, as it did uh, back in, in 2017. When will we impeach uh, Joe Biden? That's a question to think about. I guess it's after the Republicans have won the House back in 2022. So there is kind of slightly despondent quality here where we're going to repeat the whole exercise only with the sign reversed. But let me offer a consoling concluding note. I remember reading articles predicting that we were the Weimar Republic, that there was going to be fighting at the polling stations, vigilantes intimidating uh, voters. Uh, Trump was going to be uh, 
some kind of uh, uh, fascist coup leader. And frankly, none of this has shown the remotest sign of happening. Uh, the transition is going to be uh, anything but smooth, but it won't be the first time that there's been friction in that process. And I look back on the election result, and what do I see? Actually, the political center won. Uh, Biden's the quintessential centrist candidate. They would have lost with almost any other candidate. Uh, and ultimately, there were voters who cast their ballots for Republican candidates down ballot, but not uh, for Donald Trump. And that was sending a very interesting message. So the very weak performance of the Democrats down ballot, the fact that they really have so little to show for this in the Senate, nothing at all in the House where they lost seats, nothing at the level of state legislatures, they lost New Hampshire, no governorships, they lost Montana. I mean, doesn't this tell you that in reality, the American center has held far, far better than the apocalyptic pundits foresaw? Uh, and that, I think, does point in the way, in the direction that John has just outlined, that there is a potential to reconfigure Republicanism, not to jettison Trumpism. Too much of Trumpism continues to resonate with voters. Uh, but to position the Republican Party as not only the party that thinks of the working class, that isn't obsessed with racial division, uh, that wants the economy to thrive uh, rather than uh, be locked down, but we also need to project competence. And that, I think, has been the great failing of the Trump administration, the reason that he didn't get reelected, the sense that he kind of bungled, particularly bungled the pandemic. So I think the future is relatively encouraging, actually, for Republicans when you scrutinize how this result has gone. And as long as we can avoid a really bitter bout of recrimination between Trump and uh, non-Trump conservatives, uh, I think the outlook for 2022 is quite encouraging. And for 2024, hugely uh, exciting. Kamala Harris, well, against whom? I can think of at least three people off the top of my head who will beat Kamala Harris in 2024. I just want to be nonpartisan. I hope the Democrats get the same message. Uh, and that they see the results and say, whoa, our electorate does not want the far left woke uh, defund the police crowd. They want centrist, competent governance and, and give the Republicans a, a good run for their money on that. We'll see. Well, we'll find Quite out right, soon. John. It's going to be very interesting next couple of months. It's going to be very interesting next two to four years. Gentlemen, thank you for a very lively conversation as always. We'll see you soon. So that's a wrap on this episode of Goodfellas. We'll be back next week with a new conversation. On the behalf of Hoover's Goodfellows, Neil Ferguson, H.R. McMaster, John Cochran, all of us here at the Hoover Institution, we wish you and yours the very best. Stay safe, stay healthy, and we'll do our best here at the Hoover Institution to help you stay informed. Bill, I also just want to say happy Veterans Day to all veterans out there. Happy Veterans Day. Happy Remembrance Day, right? <laughs> happy Remembrance Day to all those people who call it that. Okay. All right, gentlemen, thanks again. See you next week. Mm -hmm.